Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today, we're joined with my, by my good friend, a colleague, a scholar, a gentleman. He's a accomplished uh, surgeon, accomplished researcher, uh, a husband, one of my favorite former military surgeons in the world, a good dad, and just an all-around great guy. We're talking about Ben Zarzar, who is a professor of surgery at the University of Wisconsin and the division chief of the acute care and regional general surgery there. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Yeah, great. It's good to good to be here, and uh, thanks for asking me to do this. This is this is awesome. So I when I I was trying to come up with a splenic injury kind of motif here, and I, I could think of no one better than you. You've written a ton about it. I think a lot of the topics I'm going to hit today uh, are actually come from your um, JTACO or the Journal of Trauma Open Acute Care Surgery Open article. This is a great review article. I encourage everybody to read it from uh, June of 2017. But splenic injuries. Uh, you know, here's the context of the problem. If we get a 1.5 million adults sustain blunt injury each year with 40,000 suffering a splenic injury, and according to the National Trauma Data Bank, about 10 to 15 percent of those patients go on to splenectomy within six hours, ultimately for ongoing bleeding and hemorrhagic shock, but non-operative management is employed for the rest. So, And I have a lot of questions across the full spectrum if you'll entertain them. Sure. Uh, let's start with operative splenectomies. So maybe this is the easier end of the spectrum. So what in your mind are the clear candidates for initial splenectomy? And then shift a little bit to what are the gray areas, what are the tougher decisions you have at the bedside to determine if the spleen needs to come out or not? Yeah, so, you know, I think, and and this is my my comments are you know, going to be uh, limited to adults, and you know, I'll use the adult um term loosely maybe you know somewhere around yeah 18 15 to 18 time frame we um, now i have been accused of, I've, I've accused of being an adult uh, physically but not, perhaps not uh, emotionally or mentally so we'll use that context <laughs> yeah exactly that's, that's what i mean <laughs> certainly by age um but not even how you act but uh so i i've been you know i I like the easy ones, and um, I, I tell people all the time that I, I went into trauma because I'm not that smart, and um, I like things to be pretty straightforward and easy. And somebody who rolls in the door with a, uh, an acute abdomen or hemodynamically unstable air for blunt trauma uh, with a positive fast, I mean, that, that equals go to the operating room. That makes things really easy. Um, I think somebody who is quasi-stable, who's maybe got a couple of open fractures, you're not sure what's going on there, transient responder in the, in the unit, and the in the trauma room you take them to the ct scanner you see a, a big blush on the ct scan a bunch of blood in their abdomen and they drop their pressure helpfully down to 60 in the scanner then you can take that patient to the operating room without really thinking about it hard um and uh i think that that's uh, you know i think people would agree that that that's a hemodynamically unstable patient in the setting of peritonitis or positive fast ought to go to the operating room uh, or a transient responder who you you, you find uh, they have a significant intravenous injury on a CT scan, who then subsequently drops their pressure again. I think that's somebody who would, you know, I think are clear indications to go to the OR. Yeah, and I, I think we'll get to some of the gray area stuff, but let me ask you as we're talking about the operative piece, and we won't spend a ton of time on that per se, but what's the most common mistake you see made when people, you see younger faculty or residents helping with splenectomy? What, what's your tips for the optimal splenectomy? Yeah, so, um, I, you know, I think this is something that Dr. Fabian and Kroos taught me, um, and then I've carried on. You know, I hate this uh, packing of the four quadrants. I mean, you just 
shoved a bunch of laps in there and you you know then then you can't see anything you still haven't gotten all the blood out so i think the first step in any trauma laparotomy is just get the blood out um and uh i asked for a bunch of laps open open and flat and uh then i asked the, for the uh, a bucket to put the dirty laps in and then just dig out all the blood uh and then figure out where the patient's bleeding because I've been fooled before. Um, you think it's something and it turns out to be, you know, a mesenteric rent that's bleeding and you, if you just take out the spleen and miss the mesenteric rent, the patient's bleeding to death from that in the meantime while you're just focused on something else. So I try to make sure I figure out where the main source of bleeding is before I, before I start. So I'd say that's number one, missing, you know, missing something else that might be going on. Um, so I think that that's uh, uh, would be number one. Uh, second thing that I find people do is, um, you know, they don't mobilize the spleen fast enough. And um, meaning, you know, you've got to really get your hand in there, pull the spleen down immediately, and uh, um, and expose the lateral attachments, and then get those taken down and pull the spleen up and medialize it. I think once you do that, then um, then you're uh, then you're in pretty good shape um to to start taking it down and then the last thing i would say is um you have to pay super attention to the short gastrics as you're taking them and then uh and then after you're done um you have to be really anal about going back and checking the short gastrics for two things one to make sure you got them all um and uh uh we teach a, a technique that I um, learned you know again from from uh, Dr. Fabian and Chris that you know to, to roll up a, a lap and uh, and then use that rolled lap to to splay out the tissues um, so you can see the, the uh, short gastrics um, and uh, and the retroperitoneum where the splenic bed was after you get the spleen out just to make sure you've got every bleeder uh, under control um and then the, the other part of the short gastric piece is making sure that the short gastrics, you haven't taken them too close to the stomach, because if you do that, you can end up with a necrotic stomach. And I've seen that a couple of times, and that is just catastrophic. Yeah, I have too, unfortunately. Yeah, just small little necrotic areas. Um, I, I love your thought about the I what I tell my residents. You trained in the South, so you'll get this. But I tell the I tell the tech I need a lot of biscuits for the gravy. So the lap pads here are the biscuits, and you keep sopping up the gravy until you can see what you got. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have to see how that translates up here in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, there you, there you go. Uh, so let's move now. Uh, quick question. So I've got the spleen out, and this is you can get lengthy with this question, but I just kind of want your quick perspective on this. We know overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis is pretty rare, especially in adults, uh, but it is potentially a lethal complication of splenectomy. It's why we vaccinate. How do you approach giving vaccines? What's your timing and your protocol for that uh, where you're at? Yeah, I mean, I think ideally you would wait a couple of weeks, let the inflammation of the surgery die down, let the patients get through their their initial yeah, sort of peri, uh transfusion immunosuppression, um, and then, then immunize them. I think you have to balance that against uh, uh, the practicalities of doing this and a population that's not always the best at following up or they may come from far away. So we uh, uh, we vac- vaccinate at the you know, last day, basically the day of discharge or, or the day before or the night before um, as, 
so we wait as long as we possibly can do the do the uh, do the vaccine uh, then and then keep track of who's been vaccinated um, and uh, I think you have to create a registry kind of kind of like you would a um, uh, for a vena cava filters or a retrievable vena cava filter. Yeah. If you don't keep track of that, you're never going to be following up with those patients to get the vena cava filter out. Same thing goes. Same thing goes for this. Um, I, I think you need to. They won't come back and get their uh, subsequent vaccines or get titers drawn to make sure they're immune um, unless you uh, unless you follow them. So I think having a uh, a registry essentially to keep track of them is probably the ideal situation. Yeah. Okay, good stuff. So we talked a little bit about operative and how to manage that, but by sheer numbers, right, most spleens are managed non-operatively. Um, and we do have some kind of different adjuncts we can bring to the fight that might improve our ability to manage some of these non-operatively. Yet when I, you know, I, and I do this a lot, I get called in the middle of the night to embolize spleens. Um, and I, I always still wonder about the value of those interventions. Um, so I'd like to kind of work through and then who we should be doing it for. So let me ask you, you've done more research through AAST center, multi-center studies, and certainly probably the most knowledgeable person about splenic injuries that I know. Um, let me ask you a few things. And I'm going to start with just a brief question about, and we'll talk injury grading, certain injury, the AAST organ injury scale for spleen helps us categorize these patients, but that's changed recently, right? You were part of that team that revised those guidelines. What prompted that change and what do the new changes just kind of encapsulating without running through all the grades what how is it different than the old grading system sure so um rosemary kozar really you know got this ball moving um uh but um and she was interested in looking at long uh, at uh, sort of the natural history of splenic pseudoaneurysms and, and arterial malformations within the spleen after injury um, because you know like, like you said we really don't know what happens with those things um, and uh, at the same time I was interested in long-term outcomes uh, after uh, after non-operative management I mean in the first six hours you you know you do okay and then, then what happens to you and so we piggyback those two ideas together and um, follow patients uh, long uh, prospectively, uh, at eleven institutions in the United, uh, here in the United States, um, across the across the United States, um, with varying strategies uh, for um, uh, non-operative management uh, and um, and their use of angiography and embolization. Um, and what we found through that study, uh, one uh, splenectomy after discharge is very rare. So if you can mind, manage the patient the first five to 10 days without having a splenectomy, you're, you're, it's extremely rare for them to come back. Oh, they will come back. Now, some do. There's no doubt about that, but, but it's pretty rare. Um, so uh, that's number one. The second piece to that has to do with what you're talking about. Um, what we found, uh, and a lot of this work is also done at shock trauma, too. Um, sure. And, uh, and they... If the patient has pseudoaneurysms, uh, so meaning uh, contrast blush within the, the capsule or the parenchyma of the spleen, um, uh, that's, I think that's a, 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 an indication for angiography um, if they have that on initial CT scan. If they have multiple ones, we noted that those patients had a you know, 40% um, more uh, uh, higher non-operative failure rate than, than those who 
who didn't have uh, any, and then if they had singular, you know, just one, they, they still were at increased risk above that. Again, that makes sense because the, the segmental anatomy of the spleen, you cross several segmental arteries, you get you have a chance of getting multiple severe aneurysms, um, and then that that can result in uh, failure and non-operative management because your embolization is just not quite as effective in that situation um, just because of the anatomy of the spleen. So I think that's what prompted a revision of that. That's those specific findings. The patients who had multiple injuries, patients with even one uh, vascular abnormality have a, a significantly increased risk of a splenic, uh, of, um, of failure of non-operative management prompted the revision of the uh, of the uh, WST guidelines and essentially are the grading scale. And basically, if you have a vascular abnormality um, within the perkum of the spleen or a blush, that that automatically upgrades it to a four. So you become a high-grade spleen injury just by virtue of having that, even if there's nothing else uh, concerning on this, you know, if there's a grade two otherwise, but you have a vascular abnormality that bumps you up to a grade four. Yeah. Let me uh, let's come back to vascular abnormalities in a minute because that's where the, one of the question the things that I perseverate most on. But there are let's backtrack and talk about some of the other risk factors for non-operative management. There's been a lot of discussion. Does age play a role? What are your thoughts on that? Sure, I think you know I don't think you can draw a, a, a you know a, a perfect line in the sand um, for that. But I do think that and and if you operate on enough patients enough spleens, I mean, you know this, that patients with the young, uh, who are young, um, have a tougher capsule, and those who are older have a, a less tough capsule. And so, as you get older, you're more likely to fail. And I, I, but due to, you know, particularly if you're old and you have a subcapsular hematoma, that's a, I think that gets to be, you know, uh, they're just high risk. Yeah. So that's somebody I might watch a little closer. Somebody who I might also not tolerate a big as, as big a drop in their blood pressure. I mean, you know, a lot of the patients who have hypertension haven't seen a blood pressure, a systolic blood pressure of 110 since they were in third grade. So <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it's yeah. we have to you know think about hypertension differently in those patients and have a little bit um, you know just be, be more careful. Uh, and I, I, like I said, I think age is just a risk factor. I don't think it's an absolute indication for a splenectomy. What, now, you talk, the WST grading system, as you talked about, incorporated a different nomenclature now for the vascular abnormalities based on data. What about hemoperitoneum? Uh, same grade, two different injuries, same grade. One has a large peritoneum. First of all, what is large? How do you quantify that? And that one doesn't have a peritoneum. Is it the same risk? Or what? what what's your perspective on that? I know there's not a lot of data, per se, on it, but... Sure. So, I'll just so this is going to be a combination of of, of data and gestalt. So, Love it. So, so it's it's uh, so what I, here's, what I, here's yeah. what I think. Yeah. Yeah, and this this is based on on some studies. I mean, I think you know Ros- Rosemary Cozar did a, a study on this, and three other people have all looked at the hemoperitoneum and, and that quant- try to quantify it. And I think it, just to boil it down, make it easy, because again, you know, like I said, I like things to be easy because I'm not that smart. Is a uh, if it's on, if you've got one uh, peritolic gutter that's just got some, a little bit of fluid in it, uh, meaning a small amount, then I think you that I would say is probably a, a low volume, low amount of uh, fluid in the peritoneum, and you're probably okay. Um, 
just watching that one. That's a minimal amount of blood in the abdomen, and sorry, you know, probably less than 250 cc's. Um, if you get both pericolic gutters filled, um, then I think you're, you know, you're looking at probably 500 ish cc's of blood. That's, you know, that's a couple units of blood. That's something to pay attention to. But when you've got a pelvis full of blood, that's my, that's my sign. Okay, we need to really be careful with this person. They're on the verge of. And once you get a, a pelvis full of blood, you're talking 750, potentially more, of uh, blood in the abdomen. And that's somebody um, who I will will have a, a hair trigger to operate on um, okay. if, they, if they drop the pressure. Gotcha. Uh, what about, uh, Andrew, who needs an angiogram? Who is an absolute, like in your mind, these patients need an angiogram? Somebody who uh, comes in who on presentation is relatively hemodynamically stable, let's say, and you get a CT scan, they got a, they got a vascular abnormality, let's say a pseudoaneurysm, um, and they, they, I would say uh, on, the C, on the CT scan, that's somebody who needs an angio. Now, if that's I, a clear indication to me. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. Um, so here's my question for you then. I do the angiogram. Uh, do I embolize everybody if the, if the findings are consistent with what I saw in CT? Yes, that's, that's tough. So I think if you see what if you see a pseudoaneurysm on CT scan and it's confirmed with angiography, uh, then I think a, a, a super select or a selective embolization of that is is the best course of action to prevent uh, or to help with the prevention of delayed rupture. Well, let's so a little bit of definition here for the listeners. So there's this concept of proximal versus selective. So proximal meaning you embolize the main splenic artery. Selective meaning if you see a pseudoaneurysm in a branch in the upper pole, you go off and you embolize that little pseudoaneurysm. What's the argument for proximal versus selective? Because I know some people, I get in debates about with my colleagues, local colleagues here that they say, well, you know, early in the course, a pseudoaneurysm is actually a marker for the amount of parenchymal disruption, which is a marker for the amount of, uh, of risk that the patient has for failure. So you should do a proximal embolization on those patients. If they survive, uh, you know, if they make it non-operatively out to 48 hours and you still see the pseudoaneurysm, now the rest of that spleen is told its natural history meaning that the rest of the parenchyma has not become a bleeding source. It's just that little pseudoaneurysm's problem, and then you can get selective. So where does the proximal versus selective argument fall in your mind? Yeah, you know, I I still think that selective is probably the way to go initially and as far as, uh, um, uh, and then, if you find one on a repeat CT scan, let's say. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, and the reason why is, I think it's a balance between um, uh, the potential for non-operative management, you know, the patient needing a splenectomy subsequently. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, um, balancing that against the, the issues that occur with proximal splenic embolization with regard to, you know, left upper quadrant pain, uh, maybe loss of maybe, this isn't a maybe thing, we don't know, but maybe lo- a little bit more loss of the immune function of the spleen. Um, and uh, I think you're balancing those risks. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, of, of having basically essentially a necrotic spleen and a left upper quadrant for some period of time versus, uh, you know, maybe needing to repeat an angio, maybe just needing to take the spleen out. And um, I... So I think you're balancing those two things when you're talking about proximal versus 
segmental. And so the, the arguments in, in favor of, in my mind, segmental um, embolization is just, that's just the way the spleen's made. It's segmental anatomy. Um, and if you can just embolize that, that arteries feeding that. Now, I know this is an easier, it's easier for me to say than I'm sure it's done. I mean, you'd probably know much more about the actual procedure than I do. Um, but, but that's, uh, you know, to me, that makes a lot of more sense. But there was a study that was done uh, from a, um, an interventional radio, uh, an interventional vascular uh, surgeon who, who uh, basically essentially just does uh, interventional radiology at this point. But he started measuring after embolizing, doing a segmental embolization, he started measuring the pressures after embolization in the artery to make sure that he uh, had actually cut down the pressure head so that it wasn't filling from, from other uh, vessels. And, uh, and then if it, if it still had a high pressure head, he'd either go after other vessels he could see that were filling it or just do a main splenic artery embolization. So, so that, that kind of approach seems to make a little bit more sense to me than just always doing proximal. Uh, embolization early on. Yeah, I don't. Th- uh, we I agree. We've talked about that here. I think measuring that splenic artery pressure is going to be the way forward. We just haven't gotten the right technologies to be able to do it mm-hmm. kind of consistently. Um, right. I, you know, and I'm always worried with proximal embolization. I'm always a little worried that the the blood flow to the dorsal pancreatic artery comes off mm-hmm. in variable locations on the splenic artery, and it, it's rare. There's there's a lot of arcades there. Uh, everything it's pretty forgiving in terms of the the vascular supply, but we have had a couple of cases where people have gotten into some pancreatic problems because we've done too far proximal. Um, again, right. very rare. Um, there's a there's also a question I want to ask you about. So there's some literature out there that suggests that angioembolization doesn't necessarily change the natural history of splenic sal- salvage, because you know, I, and I see this sometimes myself. So I'll be called to embolize a spleen. It's a high grade injury with a pseudoaneurysm. I embolize it. They get a CT scan of 48 hours. The the pseudoaneurysm is still filling by a short gastric. Is that patient still have the same risk? Right. So I think that gets back to this pressure head thing. Right. So, you know, do they, is there enough pressure inside that from the, from the short gastrics, the backfilling from that? Is that enough to, um, to cause rupture of this, of the, uh, of the pseudoaneurysm? Yeah. I think that patient's just at a higher risk of, of a delayed rupture. And yeah. you just have to be mindful of it. And then either you take that risk and don't do anything else, or you try to, um, try to repeat the embolization. Um, it, I mean, it's just like anything else that we do, um, you know, that we, it, it does happen. There are going to be failures, I think, um, of, of whatever the therapy is and, uh, due to variable anatomy or whatever the issue may be. Um, and we just have to accept that, uh, as part of it, of the, just the management of, of these patients. It's kind of like the fog of war, you know, like we just yeah. don't know. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I think that, at least in my mind, um, it's it's just, we, we we are complicating the angiography thing. You know, probably we, when you're talking about do we, do we think it's as effective as not? And you know, I think it's hard to say because we don't have a randomized control trial, and yeah. probably never will have a randomized control trial. Um, so I think it's just hard to to know for sure. 
What do you? What about timing of embolization? Right. So if they're at greatest risk of failure within the six hour first six hours, and that risk gradually over that period of time starts to dissipate, what's the optimal timing? If somebody comes in at, at 11 p.m. at night. Is it safe to do it the next morning? If they're otherwise stable, no transfusion requirements, you're just treating the CT findings. Right. So, yeah, this is a toughie, right? So, uh, um, I don't know if anybody knows the answer, but I, I think that uh, at the studies that I've seen done and the ones that um, uh, the ones that I've you know that I've done myself basically say the earlier you can do it, the the more likely you'll have success with continued non-operative management. So what the magic number is, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it's 30 minutes. And somebody who's, you know, if they're, they're hemodynamically unstable, you should just take them to the operating room. They yeah. don't need to be in the angiography suite, right? Yeah. So, but some people do that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I certainly don't advocate that at all. That person just needs to be in the OR. And if they get unstable before you get the, the angio, you know what? Take them to the operating room. Just take out their spleen. It's, it's a, um, it's, it's, we, I think probably my biggest thing about this is that we've taken failure of non-operative management. That word failure means like you're failed as a surgeon if you take out a spleen. No, it's just like opening on a laparoscopic case when you need to open. You just need to do it. Yeah. It's not because something's wrong. You just need to do it because it's the safest thing for the patient. Sometimes the safest thing for the patient is to take out their spleen. And I, I, have, I have a saying, you know, or around here we we say, uh, you know, the spleen is, our job as surgeons is to help the spleen find its natural home. And its natural home is in a bucket. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if we have yeah. to think of it like that rather than think like we're failing the patient by not by taking out their spleen. We need another word, um, don't we? We need another word besides failure. It's just that yeah. connotation. I, I don't have that word right now, but uh, we need I mean, to find it. Yeah, I think just switching your brain a little bit, thinking, okay, the, 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 we want to help the spleen find its natural home. Yeah. You know, that's maybe just enough of a mental, you know what I mean? Yeah. Gymnastics to, to kind of go there. So let me ask you uh, immunizations. You're selective, an advocate for selective. I think I'm kind of shifting that way as well. Um, I do a selective immunization. Do I need to immunize that patient? Yeah, that's another million dollar question. Um, I think at this point, probably not. I think they, uh, even if you do proximal, I think that there's enough evidence to show that there's retained hemo, you know, immunologic function. But again, we don't have a randomized control trial. We don't have a lot of prospective, even longitudinal data on that. So it's hard to make recommendations. My personal gestalt is if they get embolized um, and they have a proximal embolization and they're old and they're, uh, older, I'd say they're probably at, at less risk. Um, if they're younger, I might be more aggressive in, in, in immunizing those folks um, because they're, uh, they're at higher risk um, mm-hmm. if they've lost immune function to their spleen. Okay. So let's say we take the patient, we either, we take them for an angiogram plus minus embolization, we deal with everything according, we treat the vascular lesions, or they don't have a vascular lesion, but they have a higher grade injury, and we're going to admit them for monitoring. What, what is, how should we monitor these patients? Um, and how do we define when they've crossed that threshold for failure? Do they just have to get hypotensive, or do you draw a line in the sand in the amount of blood that they've required? How, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so I think a grade one or two injury um, in a 
two up let's say they've got an isolated spleen injury um in a grade one or two i think you could probably manage uh just by uh, watching them <laughs> they're, they're, there's not much you're going to do necessarily um, maybe just check some vital signs check a, a, a hemoglobin at 12 and 24 hours and make sure that they're remaining hemodynamically stable i don't think that they need to be anywhere other than probably the floor unless there's some other compelling reason to watch them closer um and uh and then you know just do some serial exams on them just like we normally would for any any patient uh, with that kind of injury um that's how i would think about for grade ones and twos when you start to get to grades you know three and higher certainly grades four and five those people probably need to be in a monitored environment and i think that depends on your local situation so if your icu is you know full of all ventilated patients and your step down unit is pretty good then maybe they could go to the step down they don't need to necessarily go to the icu for observation but i do think they need to be will have a little closer hemodynamic monitoring if they're also um they have a lot of concomitant injuries i think that's another thing to consider whether they be orthopedic or intra-abdominal injuries that's something else um to think about you may want to upgrade their their status to the icu um, or a, a step down type unit and watch them a little closer now when it comes terms of when to pull the trigger on an operation you know i think if anytime i transfuse a unit of blood i need to make sure i'm not transfusing the spleen now, i know that sounds weird but if they've got you know a couple femur fractures and um, you know the, if I have to give them a couple units of blood, I don't feel so bad about that. But if all they have is a spleen injury and I'm starting to transfuse them here and there, then I, I you know a unit here and then another unit. Like, well, that person's continuing to bleed. They're just maintaining their hemodynamics. Yeah. And typically that happens in a young person. And you say, well, I don't know if I should take their spleen out. Well, I mean, I go back and look at the original CT scan. How much blood's in the abdomen? Where's the, is there a pseudoaneurysm or not? Are there a subcapsular hematoma? Um, and then in, in that type of situation, I might rescan the patient and just see where we are. Or at a minimum, do a fast. And if they got a bunch of blood in their pelvis, I just take them to the operator and take out their spleen. Yes. If they're, you know, even if they're, quote, hemodynamically stable. Where does re-imaging, follow-up imaging fit into either the person that's continuing to require blood or let's say somebody hasn't required blood, but they have a grade three or four and no blood, they've been stable as a rock. When do you re-image them and do you need to? And what intervals? Yeah, so I think that 24 to 48 hours is probably the right, I don't know what time within that time frame is the right time frame, but somewhere between 24 to 48 hours, I'd repeat a CT scan just to be sure that there's not interval formation of a a splenic uh, pseudoaneurysm or a blush or a formation of a subcapsular hematoma that wasn't there on the initial scan. And just a word about the CT scan and the the appropriate way to get the CT. And again, this is something out of shock trauma that the radiology department um, does a a really good job of and their description of their protocol is great. So they do an arterial phase and then a portovenous phase and then a delayed phase. And each one of those can tell you something important uh, about um, the vascular abnormalities within the spleen if they exist. That's the highest, that's the way to detect, have the most, you know, um, the least number of false negatives essentially for these patients is to do that triple phase type CT scan. Not every place does it, but um, but that's getting the right CT scan and then trying to get it within 24 to 48 hours after, um, after the patient's uh, uh, initial injury would be the would be the follow-up time frame I'd do. Beyond that, I wouldn't repeat a CT scan um, on them unless it becomes symptomatic for some reason or I don't understand what's going on. 
um, and I need some more information, or um, the patient, you know, wants to go back and play, uh, you know, football, for example, and do go back to contact sports, and we need to know whether or not the spleen's um, healed or not. Yeah. I, I'll give you one scenario, and I don't know the answer to this one. So I uh, frequently, I see this not, in, or I should say not infrequently, it's not every day, but we'll embolize, do a proximal embolization, because that's kind of the way we've shifted here of late, although we're shifting back to selective as we continue to understand and look at our own experience and look at the literature that you're putting out. Uh, but I, let's say I do a proximal, and then they scan for grade f- three or four with the pseudoaneurysms, and then they rescan them at 48 hours, and the pseudoaneurysm is still filling. What do I do now? Already embolized. At the proximal. Yeah. Well, I think at that point, I just think about taking out the spleen or just watching them. One or two. I mean, if the patient can tolerate a drop in blood pressure, I just watch them. And maybe the thing will just clot off. Um, and you won't have to worry about it. But I might, that's somebody I just watch a little longer. And uh, I don't think I. So here's what I mean by if I think they could tolerate dropping their drop in their pressure so if it's a you know young person who's who's otherwise healthy i might sit tight on them um but if it's somebody with a head injury somebody who i'm concerned you know because if they have a transient drop in their blood pressure that's not really good for their head injury if it's uh, an older person who's got a cardiac history who i'm really concerned if we drop their pressure you know i'd be worried about that i mean that's somebody i would consider you know I would, I would consider taking out their spleen. That doesn't mean I would do it. It just means I'd think about whether balancing their risk uh, against the potential for developing hemodynamic instability Yeah, in that particular patient. That's how I do it, and that's a case-by-case basis. It really is case-by-case. I agree with you. And these are the challenging kind of questions. Fortunately, it's a typically unstable patient, and it's a CT finding that you get to perseverate over. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's why I kind of this is this whole topic fascinates me. So what else did I not ask about splenic injuries that you wish the listeners understood or appreciated? Well, I think we talked about one of the things uh, was you know, thinking about this as a failure and not you know trying to shift your thinking about that. Um, and then... I think the other thing is, um, you know, the goal of, of whether you do angiography on all high-grade spleen injuries or whether you see, just see, use the CT scan to screen or how that works, um, you need to do something to look for a pseudoaneurysm when a patient comes in or, or a splenic vascular abnormality on the initial scan. Um, I think, you know, uh, that's probably the most important thing to think about. I don't think the strategy, we know which strategy is the best, um, whether we can just rely only on CT scan or whether or not we need to uh, go with a spleen, um, with the angio sort of as a belt and suspenders kind of situation. Yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that. But, um, and just because you angio somebody, and, you, and we talked about this already, just because you've embolized it doesn't mean necessarily that the patient's gonna, gonna be, quote, okay. Um, and you know we shouldn't be scared of taking out a spleen. Yeah. You know it's a, it's it's a, you know sometimes it's just what needs to get needs to get done. Very very good point. Um, all right, well, Doctor Zarzar, you've heard the podcast before. You know what's coming at the tail end. We always ask some random questions because I I want the people, our listeners, to under, to know what a great person you are too, and and maybe put you in some interesting scenarios to see how you would react. So, are you ready right. for your random questions? I can't wait. Uh, would you rather lose your knees or your elbows? 
Oh God. Uh, probably my my knees. Okay. Um, I think the elbow would be a lot harder to replace. I really like you know operating and, and uh, the knee situation. I think we could we have a lot of technology for that. So I think yeah. I could lose my my knees. I think I'd be okay. Yeah, I struggle with this one. I don't know how what kind of Frankenstein table I'd have to build if I had straight elbows. As long as I still yeah. had my wrists, it'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? You need like three step stools and a, and something to you'd have to be suspended like Mission Impossible style over the patient and just use your wrists. In my um, mind, it'd be like operating laparoscopically. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I may just split like my elbows. So, I may just split my elbows sometimes and see how that works. Um, it's commonly described that Albert Einstein, one of the great minds of our age, and I love this question, but he had basically problems tying his own shoes. So, what are you strangely bad at? Um, so, I would say uh, spelling. I cannot spell. Really? Oh God, no. <laughs> If it, if it were not for uh, spell check, spell check, God bless I spell mean, check. Oh yeah, yeah. And and, the, and a related thing is uh, I, I'm horrible at, at uh, like fixing things around the house, uh, dishwashers or yeah. you know, whatever. I think you know you'd think that a surgeon would have uh, you know the skills to be able to do that. I mean I think I have the mental capacity to do it. I just yeah. don't like doing it, so I just, you know I just so I'm horrible at it. Do you misspell things in text and then blame autocorrect? Sometimes. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, that's my or trick I just, if I misspell something. I just say, dang, autocorrect. Or yeah. I just choose a different word, you know, like if a thesaurus is my best friend, I'm like, okay, what, what word can I spell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in your rare downtime, when you you and uh, Stephanie are sitting around the house and you're just chilling to some music, what kind of stuff are you listening to? Um, I probably, I, I listen to, uh, I like uh, lo-fi hip-hop. So, what? Uh, like, give me or, your lo-fi hip-hop? Yeah, like if you if you if you use like if, like if you listen to Amazon, yeah, if you go to Amazon Music and, and uh, search lo-fi hip hop, it's, it's kind of um, like Tribe know, Called Quest kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the stuff you'd hear maybe if you're at a a, a pool in Miami, you know, like, you know, it's just sort of some low-key background music. It, it's a, uh, it's it's I like that, and I like uh, electronica. So you know, some of those like uh, like you might. If you went to a club, like, mm-hmm. when you might hear mm-hmm. at a club, mm-hmm. yeah, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. I would have never. That, Do you operate that beat, to that? Like, yeah, that beat like helps me concentrate. Okay. And um, and so uh, I've I've been I've been listening to that stuff since I was in, yeah, you know, probably since college and high school, and yeah. it, it just helps me concentrate. So yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Um, last question: You have a, an MPH, and clearly yeah. you've utilized yours. But I talked. I asked, you know, Dr. Feliciano on a previous podcast the value of advanced degrees, MPH, MBA, in surgery, and he said it. You know, kind of depends on the pathway. Well, you, how did your MPH serve you, and would you recommend it to other people? Yeah. So, um, two two pieces to that. So, first of all, is uh, Dr. Dr. Meyer, Anthony Meyer, um, when I told him that I was thinking about getting an MPH, you know, what did he think? Did he think that that would help my career? And I remember this conversation, you know, precisely. And uh, he said, "It's not, it's not the degree; it's what you do with it that matters." And um, and I couldn't agree with that more. Now, you know, and and I had a plan for exactly why I wanted to do this. I knew, I knew what I wanted to get out of. Uh, the master's in public health and the skill set that I needed to fill in order to accomplish the goals that I had for myself. 
And I, I think that if that's the way to look at any kind of advanced degree, um, it's it's not going to imbue you with 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 the ability to all of a sudden be able to you know get grants and let's say you know for me it was I wanted to learn the, the epidemiology and I wanted to learn the statistics behind all that so um, and to be able to do it myself if I needed to and so that's why I got a master's in public health so that I could focus on those things specifically um, and then use those to help with my career I think um, so I had a very specific reason why I wanted to do it and I knew what knowledge gap I needed to fill in order to accomplish the goals that I had. Yeah. And so I think that's the way to look at it is, is this degree going to help me accomplish some goal that I have? Um, and I think that changes as your career goes along. Uh, some things that are relevant yeah. to you early, earlier, maybe not so much relevant later on and vice versa. Wow. Yeah, that's great stuff. So if, if you're going to go through the hassle of saddling the horse, know where you want to ride, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, don't ride, don't ride around randomly. That's no good. I'm just trying not to squat on my spurs most days, Ben. That's it. <laughs> True that. Um, too. Ben, thanks so much. Appreciate you spending some time with us. For those listeners, this has been the Trauma Podcast. Please check out our other offerings anywhere that you consume podcasts. And if you have a topic or you're interested, you can always email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com, and we'll try to respond as quickly as possible. Thank you.